The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn presents. If you really, really, really want a new car, you're spending your time thinking, should I get that kind of upholstery or that kind of upholstery or that way of playing music or that way of playing music? It's very rare to kind of pivot your attention as though to say, what does it feel like to want something so badly? Like, what happens when I am so wanting something or I'm that afraid or I'm that lonely? Like, what? what's it made of in the moment? Welcome back to the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and I have a question for you. Are you happy? Are you sure? Do you even know what happiness is? Most of us exert so much energy trying to achieve this state, we don't actually spend much time experiencing it. What does happiness feel like? My guest, the meditation teacher and author Sharon Salzberg, has spent a lifetime familiarizing herself with the wide range of emotions we humans are prone to, from envy and regret all the way up to bliss and love. But the condition of mind we label happiness is a slippery one. We think we know what it is, but we're probably wrong. Happiness isn't necessarily where you thought it would be. Years ago, I was traveling back to the East Coast from New Mexico with some friends and their four-year-old child when all of a sudden she wandered off in the St. Louis airport and got lost. When we finally found the child, thanks to a kind staff member, the child was very upset and frightened and said accusingly to her mother, you weren't where you were supposed to be. Of course, her mother had never left where she was supposed to be, and the child herself had wandered off. This incident reminds me of the sense of betrayal and fear we can feel when we discover that perfect happiness isn't where we had expected it to be. The second insight here is to become curious and investigate where we're looking for happiness. Along the way, we may see that it's society's precise prescriptions for freedom for happiness, and for abundance that can bind us most severely. Questioning leaves us released from the grip of perhaps having once, long ago, felt a certain way, or from projecting our fears into a seemingly unchanging future, or from making choices based on a long-ago determination that we don't deserve to be happy. Questioning leaves us free and open to discovery. So you say get curious because happiness isn't where you thought it would be. I think part of what you're saying is that we have some inherited ideas of happiness, mm-hmm. cultural ideas or that we've picked up from friends or parents, and they may not really be the things that will lead us to happiness. And we have to investigate that. Is that part of the idea? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. It, there's so many ideas we may hold, things we have been taught to believe, but let's just check them out. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think what an amazing capability we have to actually step back a little bit and get curious, you know, like take a look. The most obvious example that comes to my mind of sort of a socially inherited idea of happiness would have to do with material wealth or Mm -hmm. success. Are there other examples you think of, of the ways people can be misled into what they think will make them happy? Endless consumption is one for sure. 
and endless accumulation. And not only do we think it'll make us happy, we might actually think it'll keep us safe. Mm-hmm. That somehow the more stuff we have, it serves as a kind of totem against change. And ultimately, we hope death, you know? And so just taking a look at that is is very powerful. There's also endless competition, or there's the feeling of never being good enough. It's just not going to happen for you. It's not going to work for you. There's so many, you know, it's like that incessant kind of harping on yourself is productive. Self-compassion is being lazy. There's quite a list, really. Right. Well, maybe to add to that list, I think this idea of curiosity, I mean, to me, it seems, it does seem like such a master value. You know, if you can experience the world in your life with curiosity, it just opens up so many things. And in some ways, I see why that's so valuable. I also, I, I would worry that like, if I spend too much time doing that, this could just become navel gazing. You know, I can't just mm-hmm. spend all my time like, oh, I'm so curious about my own emotions and why do I feel this way? And where did this come from? And maybe that's my own inner critic, you know, saying like, oh, come on, just just move on, just just get right mm-hmm. on to the next thing. So I don't know, do you think there is any possibility of over-investigating or, or taking that step too far? Well, first of all, apparently, you know, it's quite a transforming thing to even be able to name the emotion. Right. And, you know, many of us don't know what we're feeling or we've been trained not to feel or I understand there's this school that we're kind of saying in current Western psychology, it says name it to tame it. Hmm. Just being able to name the emotion is is a significant thing for many people. And then the, the kind of curiosity or investigation comes from the fact that when there's a strong emotion present, much of our interest, our fascination, our energy is going toward the object. Like if you really, really, really want a new car, You're spending your time thinking, should I get that kind of upholstery or that kind of upholstery or that Mm -hmm. way of playing music or that way of playing music? It's very rare to kind of pivot your attention Mm -hmm. as though to say, what does it feel like to want something so badly? Like, what happens when I am so wanting something or I'm that afraid or I'm that lonely? Like, what's it made of in the moment? So you're not particularly going into where does it come from, which is a whole other kind of investigation. Right. What is it? And it's fascinating. First of all, we do start with the body. What does it feel like in my body? But also, like, let's take the example of anger. Why am I angry? What am I going to do about it? But what is anger? Hmm. And you notice it's not just one thing, right? It's moments of fear. It's moments of sorrow. It's moments of guilt. Maybe moments of grief. Very likely moments of helplessness. And so... You see the compound nature of it. You see that it's an alive system. It's not inert. It's not singularly oppressive. It's not permanent. And that leads to a lot of difference in one's life and and one's behavior. But you don't have to map that out. That's just what happens. And so do you want to do that every moment of your life? Probably not. You're right. 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 It'd be like really time consuming and you would maybe lose a lot of friends, but (laughs) I bet you'd make new friends, you know, because- I mean, I, for one, feel that my sitting and looking at fear has helped me make some changes that have been really important. Can you share any example? Yeah, like one example would be like when I do just what I described, like that pivot, Mm -hmm. instead of what I'm afraid of, you know, what is fear? What I see is that unlike the world's pronouncement, which of course is also true, that we're afraid of the unknown, I get afraid, really afraid when I think I do know. And it's all the Mm. stories I tell myself 
that get me going. Like, I'm here in Massachusetts. I'm going to go back to New York. I haven't been in my apartment in New York in months. I'm going to turn on the faucet. Didn't I read somewhere that you can get Legionnaire's disease? If you turn on the faucet, it hasn't been on for a long time. What's the water going to look like? What's it going to smell like? Maybe I'm going to get Legionnaire's disease. What are the symptoms? Mm-hmm. Where am I going to go in the middle of the night if I feel this? You know, that's when I get really afraid. And if I remind myself, even in the arc of that anxiety, you know what? You don't know. Then I feel relief. Then I feel space. And I've seen that over and over again. And I have friends like, most notably, maybe my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, who describes herself as a recovering catastrophizer. Uh-huh. She told me her, her mantra, her saying for herself these days is, not every bus ends up in a ditch. <laughs> you know, so she'll start that. My child, who's 60-something, didn't answer the phone. You know, the worst must have happened. As she puts it, she said, I never think, maybe they're taking a shower. You know, or maybe they fell in love. They don't feel like talking to their mother. It must be just, you know, they're lying in a ditch somewhere. And she'll just say, you know what? Not every bus ends up in a ditch. So, listeners, try paying attention to your worry this week, or your anger, or your happiness for that matter. When you start noticing exactly what textures and body sensations are associated with these states, you might find their hold on you gets a little looser. Tomorrow, Sharon will be back to tell us how we can use this kind of awareness to be a better friend to our friends and to ourselves. And remember, in case you miss any episodes this week, you can get all of Sharon's insights right now on our Next Big Idea app, available wherever you get your apps. I'm Michael Kavnat. See you tomorrow.